Have you ever played hide and seek with a toddler? Yes. Yeah, and if you haven't, let me explain it to you. If you have, let me refresh your memory. It goes something like this. Uh, I'm going to count to ten, and you go hide, and then I'll come find you. One, two, three, no, go hide, and I'll come find you. I'll start again. One, two, three, four, I don't know, hide wherever you want. I'll start again. One, and eventually you get through to the toddler that they need to go away from you and hide somewhere. And then you count to ten, and usually this is what you find after you count to ten, that they went over to the couch and took a pillow and did this. And hid their eyes. Because a toddler generally thinks that if they can't see you, you can't see them. I mean, isn't that, isn't that how it goes? Hasn't that been your experience? It's about like that, you know? And... um it occurs to me that that's kind of how it is when we try to hide from God. It's, it's, we're like a toddler who hides his or her face thinking that if I can't see you, you can't see me. So we think, well, if I can't see God, surely God can't see me. If he's hidden from my eyes, I must be hidden from his eyes. And you know what? Men and women have been attempting to do that since the beginning, right? I mean, think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. After they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they attempted to hide themselves in the garden. From God. Hide themselves from God. How'd that work out, by the way? Yeah, not so good, right? It did not work out at all. Because there is no hiding from God. There is no hiding from a sovereign God. And throughout redemptive history, we read about men and women who attempted to hide from God, thinking, if I can't see him, so it usually looks like this, okay? And tell me if this sounds familiar. Okay, God wants me to go over there. I will go in the opposite direction and run from God, and surely he won't notice. Does that sound familiar? Kind of sounds like Jonah from... Last week, right, in Jonah chapter 1, God calls Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim uh, a, a message to them, a prophecy of judgment to them. And he goes in the opposite direction. He attempts to run from God. How did that work out for Jonah? N not so good, right? Didn't work out so good. He ended up thrown overboard to calm the storm, and ended up in the belly of a great fish. And that's what we're going to look at today. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, throughout chapter 2. So, Jonah 1, 17, through chapter 2, verse 10. 
And I think, and, and we're going to look at Jonah's condition, swallowed by a great fish, and in the belly of this great fish, three days, three nights. And, and while he's there, he prays, and we're going to look at, at Jonah's prayer. And first we're just going to look at the components of Jonah's prayer, then we're going to learn some lessons from Jonah's prayer. But, but the lesson that we're really going to learn is that you can't run from a sovereign God. You cannot you can't play hide and seek with God. That's that's really the lesson that we're going to learn today. So let's go ahead and look at Jonah, chapter one, beginning in verse seventeen. Follow along as I read. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, brought me up my life, brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. As I said, we, we want to look at Jonah's prayer and the components of that prayer. And of course, in case you weren't here last week, and maybe if you're not familiar with the account of Jonah, just let me very briefly talk about what we looked at last week. Jonah, the prophet of Israel, a prophet of Israel, and we know him to be a prophet because he's spoken of in Second Kings, and he was a faithful prophet in Second Kings, but that prophecy that he gave is mentioned there, but the prophecy itself is not written down. And now God calls his prophet to go to Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, which is, has been and will again be a great enemy of Israel. Okay, and, and God says the evil of that city has come before him, and he sends Jonah to that great and evil city of Nineveh to deliver this message 40 days more, and then Nineveh is overthrown. 40 days more, and Nineveh is destroyed. And Jonah, hearing the call of God to go to Nineveh, immediately goes in the opposite direction. He disobeys, and he gets on a ship, pays the fare, headed for Tarshish, and God sends a great storm. The sailors are afraid, but they row harder. They finally find Jonah asleep in the bottom of the ship. They bring him on deck. They question him. They find out he is a Hebrew, that he supposedly fears the Lord God. That's what he says. He didn't use the word supposedly, but that, that's my addition. 
Okay, but I, I, I think it's well-founded because he said, I fear the Lord God, the maker of the sea and the dry land. Pretty funny that the one you fear, the one who made the sea and you're trying to escape him on the sea, you know. And, and so uh, they end up throwing Jonah overboard because that's what Jonah said was necessary for the storm to stop. But, you know. The sailors, for a little while, they even resist that because they don't want to throw him over. And then finally they throw him overboard. The seas calm. The sailors are amazed. And they sacrifice not to just a random god or the god of their own choosing, but they sacrifice to the Lord God and make vows to him. They turn from their idolatry and turn to God because of the miracle of the storm being calmed at God's by God's power, by his instruction of throwing Jonah into the sea. And then, verse 17, which we read, then God sent a great fish that swallowed up Jonah. And so Jonah, in the belly of that fish, and I I think we need to understand that this prayer is offered after Jonah's been in there a while, you know, because um, we are told that he uh, was in the belly of that fish three days um, and and three nights, and he begins his prayer in distress. Jonah begins his prayer in distress. Look there in the first six verses, you see Jonah's declaration of distress and his explanation of distress. He says, out of my distress, I pray to you, O God. And then he describes that distress. And and in short, his, his distress is, I thought I was dead. I thought I was doomed. I thought I was dead. In fact, he says, from Sheol I prayed. I cried out to you, God, from Sheol. Sheol is is the place of the dead. It's the grave. It's the land of the dead. And in fact, there is this kind of superstitious idea that that Sheol was actually an, a, a separate land, sort of the underworld if you will and and it was guarded it was it was under the sea at the feet of the mountains and it was guarded by um a a gate with bars you know (laughs) i did participate in the uh new year's eve watching of the lord of the rings and i don't know it's either sheol or the great gate of mordor i don't know uh now i'm pretty sure it's sheol That's what he's describing. Jonah is using this imagery of the place of the dead to describe his own distress. He says, you know, and he even talks about how he was down in the depths of the sea and the weeds were wrapped around his head. So he takes his own experience of being thrown in the sea during the storm and he takes the imagery of the place or the land of the dead and he kind of puts those together to describe what he was experiencing and what he was feeling in his distress. He's saying, I thought I was dead. I thought I was finished. And it was physically horrible. I was in the depths of the sea, the weeds were wrapped around my head, and it was like emotionally horrible because of I just thought I was bound for Sheol. And once I got beyond the gates of Sheol, there's no coming back. 
That's Jonah's distress. And it is out of that distress and out of that sense of helplessness and despair that Jonah prays and cries out to God. I'm going to suggest that's a good thing. And I'm going to suggest that Jonah finds himself in distress and in despair because he's forgotten God. In verse 7, his prayer begins to turn when he says, I remembered the Lord. Okay, But until he remembers the Lord, he's in distress and he's in despair and he sees his doom. You know, I'm going to suggest that that's our condition as well when we forget the Lord. When we forget that God is sovereignly in control of our lives and our circumstances and that He is there, when we forget that or when we ignore that, then we're, we're in despair. We are in distress. For those who are apart from Christ, there's a constant state of despair, distress, in a very precarious circumstance. And that's us when we forget the Lord. Jonathan Edwards, uh, you know, in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he uses the imagery of just like hanging over the fiery pit of hell by the thinnest Spider's web, the, the thinnest silken web, and you're hanging over that fiery pit. And, and Jonathan Edwards used that imagery so that, that men and women would see how precarious their position is. And, and I'm saying that that hasn't changed with time. All who are apart from Christ should see themselves in distress. And, and all of those who have forgotten the Lord and who ignore the fact that He is in control and that He is there, find themselves in distress. Jonah knows the Lord, but he has forgotten Him. Jonah knows God, but he's ignoring Him. Jonah knows God, but he's running from Him. And when we ignore God and forget Him and run from Him or hide from Him or hide a part of our lives from Him, we're in distress. We're in a precarious situation. Our doom is indeed in front of us. Because, as Hebrews tells us, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It, it truly is. Particularly when we are ignoring, running from, and hiding from Him. You doubt that? Refresh your memory of what happened to Jonah when he ran from, ignored, and hid from God. Cast into the sea, thought he was dead, and then his salvation comes in being swallowed up by a whale. A big fish. Okay, being swallowed by a giant fish. That's where his salvation comes. God saves Jonah's life from Sheol. God saves Jonah from that death that he thought was assured by him being swallowed up 
by a great fish and being in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. So that's, that's the salvation that God sends to Jonah in his distress. But the point is, we are all really in a state of distress when we ignore and forget and run from God. We are really no different from Jonah. And we would do well to call out to God in our distress. We would do well like Jonah, to remember the Lord. And, and that's the next thing that I, I want us to notice, is that Jonah's prayer, though it, begun, it, had, it had begun in distress, it moved to repentance. It moved to repentance. There in verse 7, Jonah announces that he remembered the Lord in his distress, in that very precarious situation, he indeed remembered the Lord. When my life was fainting away, it says, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And then, verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, and what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah first declares in his repentance that he remembers. He remembers the Lord. And I would suggest that that is really one of the first steps in our own repentance, when we find ourselves, and here's the reality, we will, we will find ourselves in a situation, much like Jonah, where either in big ways or small ways, but in some way, we have forgotten God, that we're ignoring Him and running from Him, and in our distress we call out, and then we must repent. And the first step in repentance is remembering the Lord. You can't Turn from, you can't repent of sin, repent of disobedience without remembering who God is. Without remembering Him. And that's what Jonah said. When Jonah says, I remembered the Lord, he isn't saying that he had forgotten about God and now he remembered. No, what he's saying is, I realized the foolishness of my ways and I realized fully who God is. Jonah realizes that God is indeed what he said earlier, what, what Jonah gave lip service to in chapter 1. He remembers and realizes in reality in chapter 2 that he fears the Lord God who made the, earth, the, the sea and the dry land. The sovereign God who made and controls all of those things. Jonah finally remembers him, realizes who that God is. And then that motivates him then to remove the disobedience in his own life. So he remembers the Lord, but then he removes the disobedience in his own life. And that's expressed mostly when Jonah says, what I have vowed I will pay. Because what is it that Jonah has vowed? He's vowed to follow and obey the Lord God and to be his prophet. Right? That, that, that's really what Jonah has vowed. That's the vow that Jonah is referring to. And he's saying, God, you called me to go to Nineveh and I refused and I went the other way, but now I'm going to remove that disobedience 
and I'm going to return to you, which is also the next sort of the, the, that next step of repentance. Though though this remembering and removing and returning, it's not necessarily linear. It's not like well, I do this and then I do this and then I do this. You know, repentance is still one act, and those are sort of three components of one act, which is remembering who God is. Turning from, removing the sin and disobedience in our lives, and returning to God in obedience. And that's, that is what Jonah does in, in the midst of this prayer. He remembers who God is. He realizes who God is in his own life. And he removes his idolatry, the idolatry of self, seeking himself and his own wants. And he removes the disobedience of running from God. And he returns to God. He says, God, I, I, I now will pay what I vow, and I will come to you with a thankful heart. I will come to you with a thankful heart, and I will pay what I vowed, for salvation belongs to God. And, and then that kind of leads us into the third component of Jonah's prayer, which is that it closes in thanksgiving and pray. So Jonah's prayer begins in distress, it moves to repentance, and it closes in thanksgiving and praise. Because he says, I will come to you with a thankful heart. And then he says, salvation belongs to God. That, that is a declaration, a confession of praise. When Jonah says salvation belongs to God. He is indeed praising God for his salvation from the sea. And he's confessing that that salvation belongs to a sovereign God of sovereign grace. That's his declaration of praise. And it occurs to me, as I'm thinking about you know, Jonah's prayer and maybe the way we approach God, particularly uh, in after a time of sin or disobedience, but gosh, anytime we pray, isn't thanksgiving and praise always an appropriate way to pray? I mean, regardless of the content of our prayer, isn't God worthy of thanksgiving and praise? Even when it's a prayer of confession and repentance on our part, isn't it appropriate to express thanksgiving to God that he hasn't already destroyed us for our disobedience? He hasn't already judged us for our sin? Isn't it, isn't it appropriate to thank God that he's granted us this gift of repentance and that he's indeed forgiven us? Isn't it appropriate to praise him that the very thing we're asking for Forgiveness of sin he alone can grant. And, and, and even the realization that we are in sin, the conviction of sin, comes by the work of his spirit in our lives. And if his spirit wasn't a, at work in our lives, we wouldn't even really be aware of our sin or <coughs> excuse me, even have a desire to repent. Yes, regardless of the content <coughs> excuse me, of our prayer. It's appropriate to express to God both thanksgiving and praise. So we've seen Jonah's prayer. We've took, taken a quick look at the components of that prayer. We see that it was begun in distress, but it moved to repentance, and it closed in thanksgiving and praise. But there's some lessons for us to learn from Jonah's prayer. And they aren't necessarily lessons about praying, but lessons about living. 
Lessons about living from Jonah's prayer. And I think that the first lesson to learn from Jonah's prayer is that God's sovereign will is accomplished. Again, what did God call Jonah to do? What? Go to Nineveh. What did Jonah do? He ran from God. He shut out God. He forgot God. But where did he end up ultimately? In Nineveh. Now, he took a very roundabout way. It involved being thrown in the sea, swallowed by a giant fish, vomited up onto dry land, and then traveled. And this is the thing, and I know this is, you know, down the line, chapter 3, you know, everything. Um, You know, Nineveh is far inland. So, unless it was some major projectile vomiting... Uh, you know, like I think sometimes we get this impression that, you know, the, the fish went and Jonah was already and he landed in Nineveh. You know, um, I, again, I, I mean, the scripture doesn't say particularly, but knowing where Nineveh is and where the fish had to be in the sea, like I said, unless it was a giant project, like a 500 mile projectile vomit, um, Jonah still had to travel there. OK, uh, and so and so I, I think that we need to see that Jonah's immediately did repent of his disobedience. And he even demonstrated his repentance of his disobedience by after getting vomited out of the fish, going ahead and traveling to Nineveh. But Jonah learned, as we we must learn, that God's sovereign will is accomplished. Now, you know, it, it may not always be accomplished you know, in the most direct path, in the most direct way. It certainly wasn't for Jonah, but God's sovereign will was for Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim this message. And Jonah went to Nineveh and he proclaimed the message. And Jonah learned that you can't shut God out. You can't shut him out of your life. God will not be shut out of your life. You can't run from God's call. Because God's call is irrevocable. That means you can't nullify it. You can't revoke it. You can walk in disobedience for a season, but but you can't run from that call. That call will always follow and always be on your life. You can't forget God. Jonah, by his actions, seemed like he was trying to forget about God. You know, I'm just going to... If I go far enough away and hide my eyes and I'm unable to see him, surely I will forget about God. And by Jonah's actions, by by disobeying God in the manner he did and to go off in the opposite direction, Jonah said, God, I don't need you. You can't, I know this isn't, I know this isn't great English, but you can't not need God. Okay? You can't escape dependence on God. We will always be dependent on God. God's sovereign will is accomplished. But also Jonah learned that mercy is forsaken in disobedience. Jonah says it like this in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah learned 
Because he stated it in his prayer that, you know, following vain idols, disobedience, when you do that, when you disobey God, you forsake mercy. That's what steadfast love is. God's steadfast love is His mercy toward us. And when we walk in disobedience, when we attempt to run from God, we're actually running from our good. God's way is indeed the best way, even if it doesn't seem to be. Jonah thought better, thought his plan better than God's. Jonah thought his justice better than God's. That's why he disobeyed. He thought his way was better than God's way. Because that's what seemed best to him. But God's way is always best, even if it doesn't seem to be. So when we run from God, we're running from the best way. When we run from God's call, when we forsake him, when we hide from him, we're hiding from the best. When we turn and run from God, we're running from our own good. And we are forsaking, we are running away from, we are leaving behind God's mercy, his steadfast love. When we pay vows or when we follow vain idols. And and understand this, the vainest idol that we follow is the idol of self. Make no mistakes about that. When I talk about idolatry, I, I, I know Jonah, when he's talking about idolatry, he's, he's actually talking about little statues or big statues that people ascribed a deity to and worshipped it. Okay, And that is indeed idolatry. But let's face it, that's not the idolatry that we struggle with in our culture. Now, we have a very real idolatry, but it's not, you know... I don't think, I would be shocked if any of you go home and you got a little shrine there in the closet with, you know, uh, some statues, maybe, you know, some graven images and you get down on your knees and you, you swear fealty. I just got finished reading The Hobbit, so I think that's where swear fealty came from. <laughs> you know, at your service, at your family. Um, but I don't think any of you do that. I don't think any of you go home and have these statues in the closet that you literally bow down and worship and give your life to. Okay? But we all, at times, love self most of all. And we regularly, we regularly follow vainly after the idol of self and do what we most want to do. Do what I most want to do. Because my way's best. And I want to satisfy self, and I'm living for me. That's following after vain idols. That's vowing to vain idols. When, and, and the idol self is the greatest idol that we face. And when we do that, when we follow after the idol of self, we run away from God's mercy. We run away from God's steadfast love. We forsake. I like that word, forsake. Kind of really puts an edge on the truth. We forsake God's mercy for the sake of self. For our own vain, prideful idolatry. Jonah also learned... That repentance and restoration 
our perpetual needs. And he learns it up to this point, and we'll continue to learn it as we look at Jonah. Jonah does indeed repent. Because he gets vomited out and then he travels to Nineveh and he's faithful to proclaim the message. Now, you know, his attitude gets messed up and, and in the end, it seems like Jonah might be in need of some more repentance, just as we are. But the reality is, is that disobedience and sin are habitual. They are habits in our lives and we tend to return to our sin. Second Peter 2.22 um, takes... Uh, a passage from Proverbs and kind of turns it a little bit uh, to communicate this. It says, just as a dog returns to his vomit, you know, so we to our sin. And, and uh, man, that's, <laughs> that's some, pretty, uh, some pretty clear imagery, right? You know, that's talking about how habitual sin is. And, and what's the other half of that? And, and you know, a, a sow after cleaned returns to its... Wallow, right, right. Returns to the mud, to the filth, okay? And that's just talking about this habitual quality of sin and how we, even after coming to faith in Christ, still love our sin and we still return to our sin. And, and we should not be surprised because we do know sanctification that process by which we are being made holy, that process by which sin is systematically being eradicated in our lives, we know that sanctification, though it is assured, it is not complete in this life. No one will be made perfect in this life. It is only in the day of Christ Jesus that that good work that God has begun in you will be completed. It, it's only at death that the soul of the righteous is made perfect. It's not in this life that we will see the process of sin completely eradicated. It is not in this life in which we will achieve moral perfection. Though we must struggle and strive and repentance and restoration will always be part of our lives. You know what? It would do us well to get good at repentance. We would do very well to learn how to be good at repentance, at, at remembering who God is and, and removing the disobedience and the sin and returning to the Lord. Because we're going to practice it a lot in this life. That's a given. Repentance and restoration are perpetual needs. And then, finally, salvation belongs to God. In fact, that's how Jonah concludes his prayer. The final statement is this, declar this confession of faith and this Declaration of praise that salvation belongs to God. And, and here's what Jonah is saying in that statement. He's saying, I recognize that God did it all. I recognize that I deserved death 
and God saved me from death. And he, he, and you know, he sees that, he sees that, that fish that swallowed him is part of that salvation, just as he sees that God put him in the sea. Because if we go back up to the beginning of Jonah's prayer, he doesn't say, the pirates, I'm sorry, the sailors, again, veggie tails got back in my head again. The, the, the sailors didn't throw me into the sea. God, you put me into the, you cast me into the sea. He recognizes that God's the one that cast him into the sea, and he recognizes that God's the one that saved him from it. Because salvation belongs to God. And in that, there is a confession of dependence. And an active surrender. Because salvation belongs to God, it's all of Him and none of us. We confess our dependence on Him. And not just our partial dependence, but our complete dependence. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. But in Him, we can do everything. Our dependence is solely and completely upon God because He is sovereign. His sovereign will is accomplished and salvation belongs to Him. Therefore, we would do well to recognize, confess, and practice our complete dependence on Him. And you know what? I think we do okay with confessing it. And even recognizing it. But, man, we really struggle with practicing it, don't we? It's hard to practice our complete dependence on God. But yet, if salvation belongs to God, as it does, then we would do well to practice our complete dependence on Him. And that takes surrender. That practicing, the, the, the recognizing and confessing and practicing of complete Dependence, it involves surrender. Actively surrendering ourselves and our will and our very lives to God. Surrendering, giving up. That's what surrender means. It means to give up, to release control. Surrender is far more than a word. It's far more than a word. It's, it's a life. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. Surrender to God is a way of life. And we must surrender to complete dependence on Him. And you know, it occurs to me that we have a great picture of what it means to surrender to that complete dependence Upon God. Because the Lord's table is laid out before us this morning. The Lord's table, the bread and the cup that represent the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whom God put forward you know, as a propitiation amen, for our sin. The body that was broken, the blood that was spilled. That we might be forgiven. That the salvation that belongs to God might be given freely to us by, by faith. 
that we surrender in faith to Him. And that free gift is given. And in Christ and in Him alone, we have salvation. That's that complete dependence. So that surrender and dependence, we're reminded of that today as we participate in the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that in just a few moments. I've got a few guys that are going to help with that in just a second. Uh, they're going to come forward. But I just want to, just want to give kind of a, a, a quick instruction about the Lord's Supper. You know, something practical. We'll have two stations, one here at the front, one about halfway down. Please go to the, the station that's closest in front of you. Please don't go, if it's behind you, don't turn around and try that. But the closest one that's in front of you. And then you'll tear a portion of bread off and dip it into the cup. And then take it back to your seat, maybe holding your hand under it. And then we'll all uh, eat it together as a community. Because again, we're also reminded that Christ died to make us into a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. But also, I just want to remind you who the Lord's Supper is for. So some practical instruction, and now some, some spiritual instruction. Okay, The Lord's Supper is for those who are followers of Christ, those who have turned from their sin and put their faith in Christ and in Him alone and are trusting in Him for the forgiveness of sin and hope of eternal life, and who have also been through believers' baptism, being baptized by immersion as a follower of Christ. That's who we understand the Lord's Supper to be for. So if that's you today, then we invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. If that's not you, if you're not sure that you're following Christ, if you're not sure that you're trusting in Him alone, um, then it's fine for you to abstain. Or maybe you've not been through believer's baptism yet, and then it's fine for you to abstain, and there, I mean, there's no shame in that, and nobody's going to come to you. Or if you're just not sure or just uncomfortable, you're free to abstain. But if you are indeed um, a follower of Christ who's been through believer's baptism, then you are invited to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. So um, if you guys can join me, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together.